0: This is Becoming Allies,
1: a podcast about inequality and what the F we can do about it.
0: I'm your host, Becky Winchell.
1: And I'm your other host, Maria Youngbeck.
0: And welcome to The Conversation. Hi, Anne. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, ladies. (laughs) So... And with our last guest, I, I introduced him, but I would I would love to have you introduce yourself because you are involved. You own your own marketing firm, but then you're also an instructor with General Assembly in Houston. And I would just love for you to tell us your background. And you're also a speaker. So I want I want you to give us the full the full scoop on Anne.
2: <laughs> well, firm may be a stretch. I'm I'm a, a one-person show, right? Uh, but thank you. I um, am Ann Wynn. And um, I think for for me, what's been most important in the last few years when I'm talking about myself is that I am a, a first-generation immigrant. Not many people know that because I present so well and I speak English so well, which is a whole other uh, part of the conversation we'll have uh, we immigrated to the United States when I was four so I've been in the in the, the states for 46 years now and um, that's a huge part of my background and my identity and something that I didn't really appreciate until probably the last I'd say 10 years of my life and, and that's definitely a part of the conversation that I want to have. Um, because for so long I was just like, oh yeah, I'm Asian, but you know, I'm living in this world and I'm, 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 I was kind of denying my culture and my identity, but you know, I'm, I'm digressing here. And so, um, yes, I'm a marketing chick as I like to call myself. I love the world of digital marketing because it is ever-evolving and ever-changing and you you know you've got to keep up or you're going to be behind and um, and then yes recently i started um, doing workshops through general assembly which is a company with uh, a deco and i do workshops on personal branding uh, the digital marketing process uh, social media introduction to social media all the things that entails uh, digital marketing and that is me in a nutshell what else I have three siblings and a fur nephew that I love and adore. Uh, Poor thing, he was all scared this morning for some reason. I was hiding out in in my restroom as I was getting ready for the day. And when you have a
1: 100-pound dog in your
2: restroom, that doesn't leave you much space to get around.
1: I am so glad you said that it was your dog (laughs) because I thought it was your nephew for a second. My fur nephew. Why is your nephew hanging out in your bathroom? (laughs) What is he scared of? (laughs) Missed the fur part, sorry. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But speaking as somebody whose whose dog does the same thing, I I get it, and it does make it very hard to move around. (laughs) Yes. And you still work for the arthritis or volunteer with the arthritis Uh, foundation? Yes.
2: Thank you for bringing that up. And yes, my the joke is that I do work for them for free. Um, because I am a very active volunteer. I serve as a board member for the Arthritis Foundation, have been a board member for the last, I believe four or five years, but I've been a volunteer for closer to eight or nine years. And I got involved with the Arthritis Foundation because of my dad. My dad has rheumatoid arthritis and seeing the challenges that he had and the the pain that he had gone through and how long it took to diagnose him correctly, and things like that when I came across the foundation, it was a no-brainer for me to get involved. And um, Becky, you know, you know me, you know, as soon as I <laughs> find something I'm passionate about, it is I'm all in. Um, and so it's been a great experience to be involved with them and to be able to help fundraise for programs, uh, research grants, but also to meet the folks who are affected. I mean, a lot of my friends that I have now, good friends I've met through the foundation, many of whom have rheumatoid arthritis or some form of arthritis, the autoimmune form of arthritis, which is just so um, scary and challenging. And then if folks didn't know this, and many folks don't, children can get arthritis as well. And for them, it's always going to be the autoimmune form of it because children aren't old enough to, you know, Get osteoarthritis, uh, the wear and tear of our joints as we age. And for kids, it is very, very um, scary. Uh, Oftentimes, the kids with arthritis will have uh, other issues, such as heart issues, or um, so they're, you know, a two year old going to see a cardiologist. And so when I share this information, folks are always taken aback, Uh, they don't realize it and uh, so that's part of, of being a volunteer with the foundation as well as you know I'm I'm almost like a brand ambassador for them helping to bring more awareness of the disease
0: so thank you for asking me about that yeah i just i know that you're so passionate about it and uh and i i, I wanted to bring it up cuz i think i think this is also a really great parallel too because you know i i'm definitely I'll say guilty of thinking that arthritis is focused on middle aged to to older people um later in life who have that, you know, like you said, the osteoarthritis, the wear and tear. Um yeah. my husband's grandma uh on his mom's side has osteoarthritis and the pain, the the immense pain and it's dehabilitating. Um, you know, it's just it's it's quite awful, but to hear too that that children struggle with it, I mean that's very eye opening.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Incredibly eye opening. Yeah.
2: Um, I don't know the global numbers for kids, but here in the United States, there are 300,000 around 300,000 children who have um, RA or juvenile arthritis, is what we call it, and uh, it really is scary for for them because, it, as I mentioned, it affects their other organs, and um, that's typically and it can be fatal for those kids, and, and that's typically what ends up happening is that their organ shut down. Um, thank goodness it doesn't happen often. It's still, you know, a rare enough case, but it's it's just really scary for the families and the kids and, and so I'm glad that the foundation is there to be this resource um, and we've really developed a network of, you know, parents who have children with um, arthritis to help other, to help new parents, newly diagnosed families, um, just, you know, because can you imagine, you know, you've, you've been faced with, oh, your child has a chronic illness that will never go away and it could affect how they live. But the thing that I'm most impressed with about the kids, they're often the ones who are out there living their life to the fullest. Because often with adults, they're like, "Oh, I'm in pain, I can't move, I can't do this," and the kids are like, "Yeah, I'm in pain, but I want to be like my friends, so I'm out there, I'm engaged in sports, and, and it's amazing to see their um, just spirit. They're inspirational to me, and, and I, that's that's the part, one of the pieces that I love most about being involved as well is it's seeing how these children are so resilient and as the adults are seeing them crying you know we're going oh my gosh and the kids are like ah okay i'm just gonna deal with it i'm gonna get out there and live yeah so i think we can all learn from that
1: definitely and i think that's you know kids they say you know and drunk people are the most honest ones so (laughs) (laughs) so but I think this is also a nice kind of transition into what we're going to discuss about you and your identity. Um, you mentioned your dad has arthritis, and but you also mentioned that you've started to appreciate your identity in the last, let's say, 10 years. So what happened? So what made you kind of start to appreciate that? And what happened before that? So I'm guessing you were in your mid-30s when this oh, all started well, to Um uh,
2: Yes. So in the last 10 years, probably, yes, late 30s, uh, I'm,
1: I'm about
2: to be 50 in a, a couple of months and um, when we first immigrated to the United States we lived in an area of Houston that was predominantly white and to give you guys an idea um, historically back before we got here there uh, it had been a seat for the klu klux klan the kkk um, so it's very it's close to east texas and in that area they they had quite a foothold but thankfully we did not experience any of those um incidences with the KKK or anything like that, but we still lived in an area that was predominantly white. We were the only Asian the Vietnamese family in our neighborhood. My parents sent us to Catholic school because we were uh, we grew up Catholic, and they thought it would be a better education. And so there, the only other Asians I saw were my own siblings too. So um, it just I it created a mindset. I'm not really Asian. I'm I'm this other. But, um, and this goes back to kind of the idea of, of Asians being this model minority, right? And we'll, we'll um, I'll talk a little bit more about that and how uh, we're seen as less threatening and not, um, not a, a minority that should be seen as dangerous as, such as black folks or Latino folks because we're this model minority. And that played into how I thought about my identity and i'll be very blunt for a long time i didn't have any asian friends i didn't want to be around other asian people i didn't want to be around other vietnamese people i thought that it was um it would, i don't want to say bring me down in some sense but it was just it was a world that i didn't know didn't care to know and when i realized that i was doing this to myself and, and i thought this has been a one really stupid of me to think this way. But um, also very hurtful, right, too, because I was out there not really embracing my cultural identity or who I am. While I still appreciated the traditions and things like that that come from the Vietnamese culture, I was not truly being true to my identity. And that's the best way for me to really describe it. I mean, there's just so much so much emotions and other things that fall into it, really embracing my own cultural identity has helped me to be more vocal and speak out,
0: I hope. How much do you think your parents providing you what they saw as the best opportunities for you to thrive and to acclimate play into this whole, you know, identity crisis, so to speak? Yeah, that is a great question.
2: And I think it does play into it some part of it because they wanted I mean, the whole point of my parents risking life and limb to come here to the United States was to give their children a better life, more opportunities that we would not have had in Vietnam. Um, and that is every immigrant parent thought and mindset, right? And that—that that is the part the piece that I'm so passionate about because it pisses me off to no end, sorry. When people speak about, um, especially the uh, Latin uh, and Hispanic immigrants who are, who come and, and now we've detained these children in cages, um, I hear folks say, "Oh, well, their parents should have never put them in that position." I said, "Do you think the parents were just sitting on their couch one day and said, "Hey, let's you know risk our lives, let's risk our children's lives, trek across thousands of miles for shits and giggles?" I'm sorry, that doesn't happen, right? It's because their current situation is so horrible that risking their life, risking their children's lives in order to even come here to the United States and give them this opportunity of a better life is still immensely better than sitting there and suffering and seeing your children suffer. And as a parent, whether you are white, black, Hispanic, Latino, Asian. As a parent, I would hope that you would understand that. And um, so, uh, back to your original question. I sorry, I digressed it again because that piece just uh, oh so of course, uh, of course. piece is what one of the things I'm passionate about. Um, I do think that that it played into, and especially being in the neighborhood that we were in, and really, um, I know that some of my parents' friends sent their kids to. Um, Vietnamese like church school so there were established Vietnamese Catholic communities already uh, but my parents didn't send us there so I don't know if it was p- the part of it is whether they just didn't have the resources or whether they just really wanted us to immerse ourselves in our new country um, and to bring it to that point I, there were many um, Hispanic friends I had in school whose parents had grown up in that generation where they had been punished or ostracized for speaking Spanish. So they made sure that their children did not even speak Spanish. So the kids that are my age in their, you know, 40s now and 50s, there were, there are many who do not speak Spanish at all. And you would think that that's a no-brainer here in Texas, that Spanish should be your second language, but because their parents grew up with that um, ostracization, they didn't want that to happen to their children. Wow. And so I think that's yeah. Isn't that crazy? So that's a, that's yeah. a big piece of it. And, um, again, I'm not, you know, me and my parents are not to blame. It just wasn't available to me out there. And it just didn't, I didn't even think about it until later. And now I really wish that there was a Vietnamese language course for adults. Course. <laughs> I don't really necessarily want to sit in church school with the small children.
1: <laughs> but what do you think? So, so, because what I'm hearing as well is that You know, your parents, uh, same with Hispanic families, that in order to, let's say, fit in to integrate, that you adopt a new culture a little bit. Yeah. Right. And and you say that you speak English fluently. So what's the problem? I really identify with this as well as being Danish, having grown up in another country. um, You end up taking away your own culture in order to have everyone, yeah, identify with you. But ultimately, they can't. Because ultimately, you are a product somewhere else, another culture, right? Yeah. How would you, if, let's say, given the opportunity again, if you were going back in time, and you could tell your parents what you know now, what would you say to them as a little girl? Would you tell them to do the same? Um, I
2: would ask them to probably uh, focus on it a little bit more, and, and, and again, not fault my parents any i think part of it is us too as kids they did try Mm -hmm. um but there were many times where it's like "Ah, we don't want to deal with it you know and you know how kids are and especially as we grew older and became teenagers (laughs) really ordinary teenagers um then you're just like "Ah." but my parents wanted us to have um every opportunity available to us and i think to them if we could speak english flawlessly if we could assimilate and not be seen as different then that would help to afford us every single opportunity that would help us to be successful. And so that was in their mindset. It wasn't really about, oh, we don't we want to erase the cultural identity, but we are here of in the States and this is how we want our kids to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. And and as a kid, you don't know this. And now as adult being reflective of it, I think about that's how they thought. And so if I were to be able to go back and, and be a more cognizant child, I would ask them to, to, to share more stories and, um, you know, make sure I went to church school so I can learn. Vietnamese.
0: I also want to ask you more about, so you, you brought up this story of, and it, it sounds to me that this happens somewhat frequently. Uh, and now as you say it, I'm starting to recognize it happening to other people uh so f- for example my sister-in-law uh her her dad is is japanese and uh i've seen her get asked occasionally where she's from and her answer is <laughs> chicago <laughs> and uh and then the question comes but where are you from where are you really from where are you really, <laughs> from? Are you really yeah. from and it's so it's so weird my my thing my my question to you is just how how often does this it seems to happen often where people uh feel that it's appropriate to ask these questions or or to comment on your flawless English skills or any any other thing i mean does this does this happen really commonly uh that is a great question
2: and and uh, it's so funny because i do. Well now it's like oh you have a texas twang i didn't realize that you would have a texas texas twang so i'm like well i grew up here in houston uh so apologies to everybody listening to this podcast and you hear my twang come across um so i'm going to reference this with i grew up we came here in on 1975 so i grew up here in the late 70s and in the 80s <clears throat> so you have to be mindful of that time frame that when you ask questions like that, it wasn't considered politically incorrect. Nowadays, yes, hopefully folks are much more aware. So while I want folks to be more aware of it now, experiencing those things did not make me feel like, oh my God, they're you know, blatantly discriminating against me. And oftentimes it was really just not being educated enough or having had enough experience with folks from other cultures or ethnicities, right? So I didn't view it as, wow, that was really demeaning to me. It's funny for to me now to tell these stories, and hopefully it brings more awareness. So I want to use that as a frame of reference for folks, because I don't want people to go, oh my god, I can't believe you grew up with all this. Well, I'm not saying it was right. It was just, this is the time frame that we grew up in. And so my last name is Nguyen, which is a very common Vietnamese last name, spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. It was pretty funny the first day of school all the time because they'd go through alphabetically and they'd get to my name and go, uh, and I would just say, I'm here, right? And and they would ask me how to pronounce it, which is fine. Okay. Um, and Lynn, some of the other experiences and uh, that you had mentioned, like when they asked me, someone asked me, where are you from? I, I, I'm going to be a smart ass and be like, Houston, because that is where I'm from. Um, but in the past, I would automatically just assume that what they meant was, what is my ethnicity and say, I'm originally from Vietnam, but we have been here in the States since I was four. But now, yes, now that that in, in this time frame, now that folks hopefully are a little bit more like to kind of play around with them a little bit and just answer where am I from Houston and then no where are you really from oh okay Pasadena a suburb of Houston (laughs) (laughs) sorry I didn't mean and then you know the conversation continues and then I go oh are you asking about my ethnicity my culture then that's a different question I am Vietnamese and uh, now if i met with blatant racism then that would be a whole other conversation a whole different
1: and is that something that you you feel that you're ever met with nowadays?
2: Nowadays, um, you know, I see these horrible, you know, stories on, on you know articles about folks blaming Asians for COVID and or uh, you know blaming Chinese folks and and just all Asians alike because you know it doesn't matter if we're Chinese or Vietnamese or Japanese, we're all Asians, right? We're all. But I guess I have been very fortunate to not have come across it as much as some of my counterparts or friends that I've talked to, or even friends of other uh, ethnicities, right? My my Black friends, my Hispanic friends, my Latin friends, I know that they have faced many, many experiences of blatant racism. And again, it falls back to that whole idea, concept of Asians being this model minority. And I think that has both protected us but has also driven a wedge between
0: Asians and other minorities, other people of color. How would you suggest some ways that we can start to educate ourselves before we you know, just walk up to, to a member of the Asian community, um, no, no matter what country they come from, and, and start expecting them to educate us on these things? Sure, and no, that's a great, question
2: and it's challenging because if you're you're not an Asian person or a person of color, you're you're and you want to be an ally and you're just like, oh and but even for myself, right? How do I be an ally for my black friends? How do I be an ally for my Latin friends? Because even though I am a minority and we're all in that same minority boat together, my experiences are different from them. I can't say that I've had the same experiences. There are some overlapping experiences with racism discrimination yes but i'm still going to have different experiences so it's it's finding those resources and having the conversations or or and i applaud you both for for launching this podcast because i think this is part of what will help to for folks to think about it to really think oh these are the conversations we need to have um to help people get over that fear of having the conversations and and back to your point maria about the fear of action i think that's fear of People are afraid of asking the wrong question. They're afraid of, you know, making someone mad or offending someone if they are simply asking so that they can learn and educate themselves. And if my friends who are not, you know, people of color and are asking questions in that vein, I have no problems with helping them to understand. But what I ask from them is that they be open to what we're telling them, because while you haven't experienced it, it doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. Um, and so that's part of it baby steps and really it's it's about having the conversation sure it may seem like it's exhausting to, to people of color to have continue to have these conversations but we're never going to help to educate folks if we don't because yeah. you can read about it you know, you can find articles you can read things but until you have humanized that experience mm-hmm. and you you know, you know me personally and you know that I've had that experience and you know how I felt about it and heard it from me firsthand and you've humanized that journey and that experience, you won't fully be sympathetic or empathetic, I think, if you're just reading text. I think absolutely there are resources and articles and books that can help, but the conversations with folks who've experienced it will take that even further.
0: That's such an interesting point because I, I think – that there's so much. I mean, Maria, you were just showing me, and and I don't know if you saw this uh, because I didn't when Maria brought it up. But that did you see that there was a a tech CEO in San Francisco that was?
2: Oh yes, I shared I shared the article
0: last night. Um,
2: in fact, and and when you were talking about uh, opportunities, or when we were talking about opportunities to be an ally. I wanna find out who that restaurant employee is and recognize her because she stepped in and was like, no, you do not get to disrespect our customers that way, regardless of what color they are. You need to leave. And I I was like, wow, this is what we need. We need people to do this. But yes, that tech CEO um, and his empty apologies.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But also what he asked, right? He said, "Who who are these people? And she said, they are our valued guests yes and then and, she just basically told him to f off exactly
2: and i that was the piece of the video that I was like oh my god this is exactly what we need uh but yeah and then his empty apologies later saying he lost control i'm like not nah, bro losing control no dude. Right? No, losing no, no, control. no 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 you were yeah. a
1: racist asshole <laughs> <laughs>
2: never when i you know in my hangriest moment have i called somebody a racial slur oh, you know, give me some food
1: That's true. A Snickers ain't gonna fix that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm launching a page and a community. I hope that would grow into a community called Children of the Dragon. And how this all came about was I went to a conference for women a few years ago on Isla Mujeres. You know, like I'm in this Caribbean, you know, great beautiful place. And I'm at a conference for women and all my friends were like, sure, you're going to a conference. I'm like, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to a conference. It really is beautiful there, but I'm going to a conference. And um, the speakers and the presenters were amazing and inspirational women who had just I was blown away by the things that they'd done, the things that they were doing. And I had long thought that I wanted to share the story of my family. Every time I, I share the story of how we immigrated to the United States. Uh, my friends will often say you need to write a book and you need to write you know I said well just simply our own story alone is going to fill a book but everybody else's stories will fill a book and so one of the things that I realized when I was at this conference for women was that so often when they talk about the Vietnam War and those experiences it's always been from the viewpoint of the men fighting the war and uh, both the American side and the Vietnamese side but no one's really talked to the women because I think about my mother and how My mother was, when we left, my mother was 25. She had three young children, ages four, three, and two, or one and a half. And she was pregnant with her fourth child. And to be able to just abandon everything that you knew, hop on a plane, get her to the country where you don't even know the language with your young family, and establish a life here so your children don't suffer so your husband doesn't end up in re-education camp because my dad served in the South Vietnamese military, which was the U.S.-backed military. So there were so many of these stories about these women that had not been heard. So my mother's story, my aunt's story, who came with us. And then I thought about my own family and the women that were still in Vietnam who were left behind. I don't even know what kind of hardships they faced in those years afterwards. I know that... There was hardly any food. I just, I can't even imagine. So those stories I wanted to share, right, and focus on the women as I have been mulling about this for the last few years. All these other instances have started happening with, you know, Black Lives Matter and blatant racism against people of color, indigenous people, um, Latin children being put in cages. So I thought, okay, I need to expand this sharing stories um, because I hope that it will educate folks. So while my focus will still be a lot of Vietnamese, refugees, and immigrant stories, I wanna talk to other immigrants and share those stories because my hope, my dream, my vision for this is that by sharing these stories, I will humanize our journeys for folks and maybe hopefully change some minds and some hearts. Yes, I know that there are hardcore racists out there who we will never be able to change their minds, that's fine. But if I can change the minds and hearts of a few folks or even our allies so they can understand better how to help us, then that is mission accomplished. Um, And that's what Children of the Dragon is all about. And I call it Children of the Dragon because originally my focus, as I mentioned, was going to be on Vietnamese immigrants. There is a, a legend or myth creation myth of how the Vietnamese people came about we are the children of a dragon king and a fairy queen um, who bore him a hundred children and 50 went to the north and 50 went with their mother and 50 went to the south with their father and that's how the country came about and so that's that's the uh, story behind the name children of the dragon and not to mention dragons are fierce creatures so there they are <laughs> <laughs> and if you look at the history if you look at the history of Vietnamese people I mean we are definitely a fierce group of people
0: I love that theme of just making everything human because I think even then humanizing things starts to open up a conversation that sees people as as what they are it's so much more like that rather than a you people sort of thing because that's that's what I'm seeing in all these videos you people. But what is that? It's it, it's yeah. it's such a distance, right? It's it's you're not even bothering to look at, and I and I don't mean this. I it, it's it's almost like this epiphany that's come just hearing you talk. That when you hear that kind of stuff, it's a it's a common theme in all of these. You know, we we call them the the Karen freakouts, right? Or the you know just the the racist freakouts of of people just going, "Well, you people go back to where you're from." But it's just it's it's not it's not just the ignorance. It's the fact that you've just cajoled individuals into this like kind of vague grouping of folks without even being able to look at they actually are as individuals as people as humans and I mean there's so much that I've learned just in this conversation with you today uh, about Vietnam and about the stories and I, I mean I can definitely tell you that we're going to be on your tale about Children of the Dragon, because we're going to have to <laughs> share it with everybody.
2: Good, but I want to learn so. all these stories. Yes, I've I've started um, asking uh, guests. One of my one of the my new newer friends that I've I've met recently who is Vietnamese. I heard him telling his story to a couple of my other friends at his his dinner party that he invited us to recently. And I unfortunately was talking to somebody else, so I only heard bits and pieces. But from just the bits and pieces I heard, I started tearing up because while my family story of coming over here is unique, right? Who has who else has their dad show up at their grandfather's farm pick them up in a helicopter. While that is a unique story, I realize and understand that I am very, very fortunate and privileged to have come over the way I did. We did not have to suffer. My dad, yes. Cool. He picked us up in his helicopter. <laughs> The U.S. helped us get the hell out of Dodge the next day. We were on a U.S. military cargo plane. We ended up on a U.S. military aircraft carrier. We were at a refugee camp in the Philippines run by the U.S. who then helped us get to the U.S. again and be at another refugee camp um, outside of of San Diego, Camp Pendleton all these things and, and my dad are the new people here in Houston so while our journey is unique and I would love to I, I want to continue to share that story so people understand um, I am very very lucky to come over the way I did because there are others who did not have that luxury and who suffered quite a bit sorry because um, I'm sure you're familiar with the about people The group who had to come over after us in the early, the late 70s and the early 80s, um, my own aunt, my dad's sister, uh, was lost at sea with several of my cousins. We we just assumed that they were attacked by pirates and perished. And that was when I was 18. So it's been 30-something years now because had they made it somewhere to some refugee camp, we would have gotten word. Um, So, you know, we lost them. Uh, my new friend that I met, I told you uh, he was in a boat with 200 other people, 150 of whom were killed. And he was a nine-year-old He was kept in a cage for two weeks by Malaysian pirates. And, um, you know, at the end of the two weeks if he lived, and they kept him. And he was separated from his mom and his dad for four years, right? And his dad never, never stopped looking for him. And one of the things when they left, his mom, um, his dad had served in the South, Mains military, just like my father as well. And they gave him, she was like, made sure that each of the kids had a dog tag so that they could, they held onto this dog tag so they could help find and identify. So these are the stories that I want to share because people don't understand this. People don't understand how difficult it was and how, you just don't decide one day that you're gonna risk your life and your children's lives so you can get to the United States because you want it. You know, it's not an easy decision, it's not an easy journey, it's not an easy process. There are so many stories of families that were separated, even having left the way I left in 1975 when the country had gone to, to pot. It just blows my mind how many families got separated and because, literally, because these parents pushed their kids on a helicopter, on a plane, trusting that they would be taken care of by by strangers just because they knew that that was still f- far better than the life they would have had
0: so um i think we're all a little teary right now thank you um, for for telling us that no thank
2: you i mean like I said i i'm you know i want folks to understand that this is we may have different colors, we may have different features, but at the end of the day, you still have the same aspirations for your children. You still have the same dreams for your children. As a parent, you want your children to thrive and succeed, you know. Or, you know, it, I don't have any children of my own, but I want my nieces and my nephews to know, you know, where they came from. And so, this is, I guess, you could say it's a passion project for me. And part of of course. My part of my coming to terms with really um, embracing and appreciating my ethnicity and my cultural identity and and, and getting out there and helping to bring the awareness and hoping to change some hearts and minds. Um, I know I mentioned Vincent Chin earlier in the, the podcast and I wanted to talk about him a little bit specifically because of the role it plays or the role he played. in kind of the interminority minority racism that we had mentioned um, back in the 70s when there was this gas shortage. And I know you guys were probably not born yet, so I may not <laughs> realize there was a um, gas shortage. I mean, like, literally people were waiting in line and had to, like, if your license plate ended in this number, you could go fill up your car on you know, Wednesdays. And if you, you know, this number, you could go fill up your car thursdays and so the japanese were had developed fuel efficient cars right toyota uh back then it was Datsun, now it's nissan i'm really showing my age now and so uh they were becoming popular purchases in the united states and that put out a a lot of american automakers um uh had to put a lot of people out of work and so in the i believe this was in the detroit area because there was that's where still the base for automakers. There was a Chinese man named Vincent Chin, uh, a young man, 20-something, who had gone out with his friends at night to celebrate his bachelor party. He was getting married in two weeks. Uh, they went to his bar and there was a dad and his son in there who had been laid off uh, from the auto assembly line and, and whatnot and were pissed off, completely pissed off and blamed Asians, Japanese. They didn't need to know that Vincent wasn't even Japanese. Uh, so they picked a fight with him, took it outside of the bar, um, and beat him to death with a baseball bat. And I don't know that they ever really faced any criminal charges later. I think they were brought to trial, but I believe uh, that they were not found guilty or got a slap on their wrist. And so after that, Vincent's mother became more of an um, activist for this. And, and I mean, this Vincent's death and the not getting justice for him brought Asians to coalesce and protest, which was something that we didn't do. We're we're Asians. We're the model minority. We don't do this. We don't rock the boat. But this is what it took for a coalition to come together and protest that this man's death was, you know, there was no justice for him. And at the time, uh, black civil rights leaders stood with Vincent's mother as allies because they understood, they knew what it was like historically to not have justice for your child who had been murdered simply because they were not white. And so that was a pivotal point in, I thought, hoping that it would bring us all together, right? But unfortunately, um, it was not enough Um, and Asians, Historically, look at black people as less than, and I don't know if this is something that we learned from white culture or because we just feel like, oh, black people have darker skin. And when I say we, I think it's you know, and and typically a lot of the older Asian folks um, because they're they have dark skin and so they're not not as I don't know they're less than, if you will. And so that was part of it, and then. There was a lot of tension between the Korean community and uh, the black community in Los Angeles at the time of the Rodney King riots. Do you you guys recall when Rodney King was beaten to death by the police and then riots riots happened? Well, a lot of Korean businesses suffered during those riots. And instead of kind of putting the blame and fault where it should have begun with, you know, it started because this poor man was beaten to death, Um, they turned around and blamed the black community like I can't believe you destroyed our businesses and that was that just furthered the tensions between Asians and um, for the Korean community and Asians as a whole and the black community in Los Angeles and then um, a Korean storekeeper or store owner shot a 15 year old black girl in the back because she thought she was stealing and she got off with a slap on the wrist as well and that didn't help things and so all these instances that just further makes asians puts that wedge right but it, and again it, it's back to that whole idea of asians being this model minority i don't i don't know who came up with this or how it came about i haven't done enough research but that in itself has really driven a wedge between asians and black people and Latin people because we feel like we are we're above that uh, Asians like really. and I, again, I'm not, I shouldn't speak for all because obviously, I don't feel like that. But many Asians feel like we are above black people or above Hispanic people or Latin people because you know, we're more accepted by um, the white community. And, and that piece of it, I know we're still working on, and I want us to continue to work on. I hear my parents say things, and of course I correct them, but you know they're also almost 80 years old and I know I'm never gonna change their minds, but I think there is hope for this next generation because there's, there are movements like um, Asians for Black Lives, which I was so heartened to see when all the Black Lives Matter um, uh, movements and protests happened. But what does also drive me crazy is I'll read an article And I will see a lot of Asians, even Asians my age comment, well, why should we care about them? They don't care about us. And it's become this mentality that we have to somehow erase, right? It's not about why should we care about them or care about us. It's We're all humans. It should be all of us. And so I really wanted to make sure that I brought that up during this conversation. There aren't any answers. I don't have any answers. It's just something we still have to be mindful of
1: and aware of and continue to work on. Definitely. And and just what I was just going to say, so having grown up in Indonesia, I really, really resonate with that because um, I also grew up in a society where um, a lot of the people around me, the Asian Asian society was very racist towards Black people. Um, And that was always really shocking because it was so um, accepted that... You know, uh, a white person couldn't be racist towards a black person because that's, I mean, no one should be racist towards anyone. Mm -hmm. But the Asian community there seemed to think it was fine for some reason. Right. Yeah. And like really, really blatant about it. But what I also recently read is the hierarchy of racism. So how it came about and that there are five pillars. So, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We don't have any differences besides maybe the color of our skin and how we look a little bit. But when this all came about, it was obviously created by white people, but then it was white people, Asian people, Mongolian people, Hispanic people, and black people at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And if you look back historically at that kind of thinking, then it also makes sense that you say you're the model minority. Asians are right under the white, so then they can go and be racist towards the rest because they're second to the whites. And that's not saying it's right, but, but you can almost understand the frame of thinking. That absolutely makes sense to
2: have this pillar and about it. I mean, you just think about um, back in U.S. history too, right? Every new group that came over, every new group of immigrants, when the Irish came over, they were looked down upon by the British. And then later on, the Italians came over, they were looked down by the Irish. Simply because they were a new group of immigrants, they probably all, most of them looked alike with, you know, fair skin and things like that. And so, color wasn't, hopefully, the differentiator there or the discriminator. Um, but regardless of whether you're Irish, Italian, Asian, all this stuff, there were still lower groups that you could then lord over, quote unquote. And I, I don't understand why it's part of human nature to be like that. Like you have to feel better than another because simply because of the color of their skin. That doesn't make sense to me.
0: But what's interesting though is that act, failing of human nature, is dehumanizing, isn't it? To look down on people because and and to put them beneath you is ultimately dehumanizing. Because that's this huge theme, Anne, that you brought to us today. I mean, there's there's all these thoughts going on just as you were telling us just your your story of how you got here and how other people didn't get to america and how also just the the wide range of stories and i i think too, the motivation of parents i i can't imagine you know being a parent and 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 having feeling so desperate that you, that you have to, that that's, that's your option, right? That's the only option that you have. And, and as you're, as you were saying this, I I thought, you know, what is so offensive, especially now knowing that, and all of a sudden the light bulb went off in my head that in people saying, go back to, you know, where you came from is just so offensive anyway but also now viewed in this light of people's stories you're just spitting all over that journey and and now I'm going to cry but that decision that people make you know that 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 heart-wrenching decision and you're just dehumanizing and you know just saying that it's it's not worth enough to just dismiss it so suddenly and it's so interesting that it seems like yeah that that there's this there's this bad part of of human nature that i think is to just dehumanize one another but then the silver lining so to speak or i guess the upside to it is that allyship part that the more conversations that we have and what I'm hearing from you is the more people tell their stories, the more that it becomes hopefully impossible to do that,
2: to yeah. treat
0: people like they're not human anymore. Yes,
2: absolutely. You know, I mean, as marketers, we're we're always telling brands, tell your story, tell your story so you, that people will care about your brand. Well, that's exactly how you're going to care about your fellow human being is to hear that story and know what they experience because it's so different from yours and to put yourself in their shoes and to sympathize and hopefully go beyond that and empathize right because we want empathy as the goal not just sympathy but empathy and i think that's how we then continue to fight all this racist shit
1: boom
0: thank you for listening to our podcast becoming allies is produced and hosted by becky winchell and maria Youngbeck. The show is engineered and edited by Dennis Dervasevich. Find additional information and allyship resources on our website, becomingallies.com, and sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know when new episodes are live. You can also join the conversation with us through Twitter and Instagram at Becoming Allies. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as well. We read all of them. You can find more episodes at becomingallies.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player.